This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks, and I lead the Asia Pacific Markets Group. Today, we're going to be discussing Thailand. Thailand will be holding its general elections in less than a week on May 14th, and the outcome will determine if it can finally break free from a military-led government, which hasn't happened since 2014. So in the past, elections have almost always favored the current opposition party, Portai, and the former premier, Thaksin Shinawat. They are now back in the spotlight as they try to repeat the electoral feats of the past, and this is shaping up to be one of the most competitive elections since 2011. Why are observers watching this so closely? Because this is one of the biggest markets in Southeast Asia, and everyone's waiting to see whether the results can produce the political stability that will free up the government to focus actually on developing the economy and pushing forward on the economic transformation that will help Thailand really take its place even further across the Southeast Asia business community, and particularly as companies in this business moment are looking more to China Plus One strategies. And they're also watching closely to see if there's going to be a return to any large-scale demonstrations or civil unrest like we've seen in Bangkok in the past. So we're going to be taking a look at all of this today, what to expect from both a business risk and business opportunity perspective in one of the largest markets in Southeast Asia, Uh, with potential contentious elections right around the corner. The election offers no surefire way out of the polarized politics of Thailand. But actually, for companies making purely private plays, Thailand offers emerging opportunities for the taking. That was Harrison Cheng, Director and Southeast Asia Lead Analyst based in our Singapore office. Harrison, we were saying there are so many eyes on this election, and I think, you know, there's really two things I hear clients asking us about. One is about potential for civil unrest, and one is about what's going to happen in terms of the electoral outcome. Can you give us a broad read? What's happening with the general elections in Thailand now, and are there any particular parties or key individuals we should all be watching for? Thanks, Angela. So I think for this election, you know, there are two main blocks to look at. The first is obviously led by Poor Thai, the opposition front. Uh, behind them are the Move Forward Party, the most progressive um, and politically liberal party there is. Um, and the two of them are essentially trying to win the next election, but they are facing up against the current ruling coalition made up of a mix of conservative and pro-military parties. So I think the key parties to look at, number one, is obviously Poor Thai. They have been the most popular party uh, in all elections since 2001, when Thaksin uh, came into the spotlight. And I think on the other side, you have to factor in Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha, who still has two years more uh, to serve as Prime Minister. Um, beside him is his deputy, Prawit Wong Suwan, who leads the Palang Pracharat party. And I think the... Final party I'll draw attention to is this civilian party called Boom Jai Thai, led by Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Public Health, Anutin. I think if we look at kind of the forecasts here, uh, I think the most likely scenario will still be the ruling coalition coming back to power, simply because these various parties, led by Prayut, Prawit and Anutin, uh, have been able to work closely together. And they don't have the kind of divisions that currently characterize the opposition camp. 
poor tie and move forward don't necessarily work together well. They don't agree on a couple of ideological and policy issues. And so I think the ruling coalition is most likely to come back to power, perhaps by a slimmer margin than they would feel comfortable with. Okay. And with that said, then what do you see as the risk of civil unrest? From the demonstrations we saw in Bangkok from 2020 to 2021, it seemed like Thailand was going back to that scenario of large-scale unrest. But that hasn't happened because there has been a decline in the momentum of anti-government demonstrations. Activists are trying to effect change through the ballot box. And that's why you see Bangkok has been pretty quiet over the past 12 months, actually. But I still think there's a risk of civil unrest under certain conditions, one of which is there are signs that the election might be rigged. There might be orchestrations of uh, interference uh, by the pro-government parties, for example. And that could really trigger public discontent that would turn out in protests. The other one would really be poor Thai, winning by a massive margin. For example, I would say anything upwards of uh, 250 seats out of 500 seats in parliament. I think if that happens, the military and the conservative parties will be pretty concerned uh, about poor Thai taking power and possibly undertaking some moves to undermine their prerogatives. So I think in those situations, we might see uh, large-scale demonstrations return. And what about the role of the king in this particular electoral cycle? Does that matter? The king has always been a key source of legitimacy for governments. Um, to have the king's blessing uh, does help a lot in terms of uh, ensuring some kind of stability for the government. And it is no different in the upcoming election. Um, the king has been fairly comfortable uh, working with or rather overseeing Prayut and what he has been doing uh, through government. And I think there is a certain level of comfort there. I think the king would be somewhat looking at the opposition and having some questions around what they plan to achieve in terms of policy. Certainly the Move Forward Party in particular, the opposition party, has openly spoken about their desire to amend parts of the penal code that relate to uh, comments on the monarchy, as well as other monarchical reform proposals. And I think the conservatives would be thinking about that kind of agenda that would concern the king. And so I think they would try to reassure the king that what they're trying to do to form a government together is essentially to provide that kind of bulwark against the kind of overreaching reforms that the Move Forward Party might have. And I think because of this concern with Move Forward, uh, poor Thai will also think twice about having an alliance with uh, Move Forward. They may be concerned that they will not be able to curb uh, Move Forward's uh, policy proposals, and that might get them in trouble because, as we have seen in the past, political parties that touch on particularly sensitive issues relating to the palace or the military may find themselves in the crosshairs of whether it's the constitutional court uh, or other independent bodies. And that, in the most extreme scenario, could actually lead to party dissolution, which is what Pertai does not want. We'll return to the conversation with Harrison shortly. Please do click on the link in our podcast notes to follow our Asia in Focus podcast series, where we'll be bringing regular updates from across the region. And if you're looking for more such analysis and insights from our experts all over the world, please do visit the Our Thinking section on www.controls.com and you'll find a lot of information there uh, to read through. And now let's go back to our conversation with Harrison. Thus, 
That's a really helpful picture of the domestic situation. Um, let's take a step back and think about Thailand and the role it plays more broadly in the region. I know that a lot of clients are asking us about Thailand, particularly in the wake of a continued push to a China plus one business strategy, the need for resilient supply chains and the rest of it. And I'm wondering if we can get your perspective on Thailand's relationship with China and how that bilateral relationship is evolving in the context of the wider picture of geopolitics impacting businesses across Southeast Asia. Thanks, Angela. I think the Thailand-China relationship has been strong for a long time. It has strengthened definitely under the former military government as well as the current civilian government. And you can see that uh, Chinese investors have a certain level of comfort with Thailand. We've seen influx of Chinese investments into the Eastern Economic Corridor, which is Thailand's key FDI zone right now, as well as uh, emerging sectors such as uh, electric vehicles. So quite a number of Chinese companies, automakers have come into Thailand to build EVs and EV battery plants, signaling their level of comfort with operating in Thailand. However, I think what is often missed is that Thailand also takes a deeply pragmatic view towards bilateral relationships, including with big powers like China. You can see from how Thailand has negotiated quite aggressively on uh, BRI projects in Thailand, a certain level of reluctance in taking on Chinese loans and instead seeking to finance it themselves, as well as their choices in terms of building out their 5G network infrastructure choosing to take on some of the big European players instead of relying exclusively on Chinese technology. And we see on the other side of the picture, Thailand has continued to express that kind of enduring desire to remain connected with the West. Uh, you know, they are part of the Indo-Pacific economic framework. The defense ties with the US remain strong. They had their Cobra Go military exercise just two months ago, and the US contingent was one of the largest we've seen in years. Thailand is also pursuing FTA negotiations with the EU, which was announced earlier this year. And all these point to a very balanced, you could say hedging perhaps, foreign policy where Thailand seeks to maintain warm relations with both China and the US. So in response to what our clients are asking us about, is Thailand a geopolitically safe place? Uh, and this is something we talked about recently in one of our articles. So we framed it as Thailand being a geopolitically neutral zone where there's a really a very minimal risk that Thailand would discriminate against investments from certain countries just because of geopolitical ties, simply because, number one, they want ultimately to pursue an independent foreign policy that will not burn bridges. Number two, because they seek to attract foreign direct investment wherever the opportunity arises. They are competing very aggressively with Indonesia, with Vietnam, with Malaysia for FDI in this region, and they're not going to be choosing investments just based on whether you will offend one friend or the other. So that's really interesting. And then that leads to my next question, which is, if we're saying that Thailand is uh, doing a successful job in terms of balanced hedging, as you said, in a geopolitically safe place for investment and not being discriminatory in any way, why not Thailand versus other countries in Southeast Asia? A lot of our clients, as you know, come to us asking about Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines. What has been holding Thailand back from being really in those top three. And if you can talk also about maybe some potential sectors, I know there's legacy sectors there, auto and manufacturing, but there's some talk about the green economy being an area where Thailand can excel. Can you give us a picture? What would it take for Thailand to be one of the top three that we talk about in terms of foreign investment? 
So I think what has held investors back from Thailand, number one, has been the rather sluggish economic growth over the past decade. And that really boils down to a lack of ambitious reforms in things like education, labor quality, upskilling of their workers, really. The second one would be political instability. The fact is that the military has not been able to really prevent Poor Thai from coming back to power, except in 2019, the previous election. But we see that Poor Thai still has a pretty strong foothold in terms of public support. That's why investors are worried because the pendulum could swing back between the opposition and the military every four years. And that's not good compared to other countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, where there's more certainty around the political scene and the government formation. Um, thirdly, I would say it's about labor issues. You know, Thailand has the highest minimum wage in Southeast Asia, and there's upward pressure on that because of the populist politics being played by both sides. Other labor issues such as forced labor concerns and the reliance on migrant labor, which was a weakness and a source of disruption, especially during the pandemic. But I would say that there are certain sectors that the government is and this government is pushing and which the next government will probably continue in terms of attracting FDI. So one is really upping their game on automotives. They're no longer just sticking to traditional uh, vehicles, but moving towards the next gen automotives, focusing on EVs and EV batteries, even some early steps in stimulating lithium mining and processing within Thailand itself. The second will be medical and healthcare sector. So Thailand is offering uh, generous incentives for foreign investors to get into sectors like biotech, biomedical manufacturing, especially in the Eastern Economic Corridor. And the third will be about the digital economy. So everything from digital payments, where Thailand is one of the largest adopters of digital payments across Southeast Asia, to 5G adoption, Thailand being the first country in Southeast Asia to launch commercial 5G services. These are some of the bright spots for Thailand. I think also looking at the emerging sectors, the legacy sectors have a lot to offer as well in terms of potential for growth. Thailand is gearing up towards transforming its tourism sector from one that caters to the mass tourists to medical and luxury markets for tourism. For manufacturing, they are continually improving the logistics and transport infrastructure so as to ensure that Thailand can play a key role in manufacturing for export activities on mainland Southeast Asia. And finally, for oil and gas or petrochemicals, Thailand has moved up the value chain in that sense by focusing on the production of specialty chemicals, which are used in a wide range of sectors like agriculture, pharma, manufacturing, construction. And especially in the Eastern Economic Zone, there is already a very mature infrastructure that is set up precisely for the petrochemical sector, in which we still see client interest over the past year. Okay, so what I hear you saying is that a key reason that Thailand is not already one of the first or second markets people think about in Southeast Asia is because of political stability. So that leaves us then to ask, what would it take for Thailand to actually see that long-term stability again? And, and is this election going to change that? So yeah, the first and foremost you know, that Thailand needs to achieve is really political stability to sort of drive that kind of long-term economic transformation. What we need, the ingredients for political stability is number one, the civilians need to win big in this upcoming election. And I think a more plausible pathway towards forming a government that is stable over the next four years and which is good for the economy is actually the success of the Boom Jai Thai Party, the BJT party led by Anutin, the Deputy Prime Minister and Public Health Minister. Why I say so is because Boom Jai Thai, Anutin specifically, is quite comfortable working with the conservatives. He doesn't have the kind of legacy issues that Thaksin and Poor Thai have, which would cause the conservatives and the military to be deeply uncomfortable with them being in power. So if the BJT is able to win a sizable amount of seats, you know, 80 to 100 seats or even more, 
they could be a third force in politics besides poor Thai and the Palam Pracharat Party. Everyone is looking at poor Thai to sort of win, in a sense. Poor Thai themselves are quite ambitious in setting their targets of winning up to 300 over seats out of 500 seats in the lower house. Our call is that that's probably not going to happen. And actually, such a large win may also not be the best long-term solution for Thailand because the size of that kind of victory will really unsettle the military. And there is a very credible risk that you could see yet another military coup within the next two years, particularly if Thaksin tries to return to Thailand. Now, he has said recently that he wants to return to Thailand, but with the caveat that he is actually willing to serve a jail term for what he's been convicted of. Now, whether Thaksin really is going to do that, there is some doubt about that. There is a possibility that a poor Thai-led government could try to arrange such that Thaksin does not have to serve the full term or he's actually, you know, his sentence is commuted or he's actually let off easily. So if that happens, if Thaksin comes back or if poor Thai makes even the slightest move to bring Thaksin back, that could really trigger the military to start interfering more actively in the politics. So I think ultimately what we want to see in this election that would tell us that Thailand is moving in the right direction is that the civilian parties need to do well. And it's not just poor Thai, but Boom Jai Thai and the other civilian-led parties. That will be a first step in leveling up in investor confidence and enabling them to believe that you know Thailand is on the right path to attract more FDI in the coming years. Yeah, that's a great summary, Harrison. Thank you. So I guess the takeaways here are indeed there is a path for long-term political stability. Maybe it's a bit of a narrow one, but as you just outlined, particularly if it's civilian parties do well, and that reduces the risk of both civil unrest as well as a military coup in the more medium term. And assuming that Thailand can reach some sense of political stability, then we're seeing a lot of opportunity in legacy sectors as well as some of the newer ones you mentioned. So, you know, not just oil and gas, but moving into green transition areas, electric vehicles, and not just the legacy tourism we know, but areas like medical tourism or luxury tourism and the like. So it sounds like there is a a way forward for Thailand to take a stronger role in attracting a lot of the investment that's coming into the region from China and from elsewhere. So we'll wait to see if that happens and certainly hope that it does because it's set up for success if it can tackle the political side. So thank you, Harrison, for this great discussion. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. That's all for today's Asia in Focus. If you did enjoy this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel so you can receive all new episodes just as soon as they're released. Thank you, and we'll connect next time. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe. And make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.